Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University and I'm joined by my MNU colleague Dave Porter. Morning, Dave. Hi, Pete. It's just we two this week for episode eight of the podcast because Jeremy's away on some well-earned leave right now. But we have a busy show all the same. In a moment, we'll hear from a Northern Ireland journalist who was arrested in the summer over his refusal to disclose the source of documents used in a film investigating the unsolved murder of six people by paramilitaries in a bar in County Down in 1994. And Dave, you've been speaking to the former Daily Mirror reporter whose investigative work helped the police put together evidence which led to the conviction of Levi Belfield for the murder of the schoolgirl Millie Dowler in 2011. Yes, yes, I did, It was fascinating, actually. Um... David Collins came into the office and, in fact, he came into one of the lectures and spoke to our third years, really talking about um, his his uh, contact with the family, uh, with the Belfield family. He'd been contacted by uh, the, the mother of Belfield and his brother, and uh, he took the students through the whole process of basically ringing Belfield in Wakefield Prison, um, how easy it was, uh, and talk them through um, the ethics of that and the subterfuge, uh, effectively, that was involved in doing that. Um, and he had to pretend at one stage to be uh, Belfield's uh, solicitor. That was, in fact, because the phones were being tapped for yeah. the first 30 yeah. seconds, and then he yeah. said, I heard the click go, and then we could reverse back to you know, uh, or no more conversation. Yeah. But he said, you know, it was interesting because he said the first time it happened, you know, his, his recorder wasn't working and he got back to the office and, you know, had to go back again. And he built up this relationship um, with, with Belfield. Uh, and one of the key parts of that was that he managed to get Belfield to admit he'd been driving this red car, yeah, which was yeah. a key piece of evidence, really. Yeah. And and, um, and it was that which triggered um, the prosecution. And, of course, the mirror ran with the story, and the evidence was passed to the police, and David was named, I think, uh, Journalist of the Year. Journalist of the Year. Award. Yep. So yep. I think, actually, it was a great session. The students really warmed to David. They asked him some really interesting questions, and it brought home to them, you know, just uh, the parameters of what we can uh, do as investigative journalists, yeah. how we can work, um, how we can use work within the code uh, and justify these kind of breaches potential breaches in the public interest. Yeah. So a uh, fascinating guy, yeah. really good, interesting story, um, directly related to, to what we talk about in class. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So we'll hear we'll hear directly from David in, in just a moment. But uh, remember, first, you can tweet at us at RightsBang with any comments on this show or any of the other shows or questions about any issues that you'd like us to cover in future programmes. We'd love to hear from you. But first, so Dave, what uh, apart from David mm. Collins, what else have you been listening to, watching, reading this week? Uh, listen to the media show this week. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, which yep. was talking about the, uh, you know, the number of journalists, journalists um, expanding, and yep. the um, there was a really good um, speaker from Leeds who talked about setting up a hyperlocal website. She was very inspiring. Also, listened to Law in Action. I'd advise all our students to listen to that. There's yep. a really good piece actually about the Diplock Courts. Yes, yeah. So they're the, back with a new series, the Diplock Courts, yeah. and we'll be coming to Northern Ireland policy in a minute. Well, or two. I, yeah. I thought that might tie in. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I always find Law in Action really interesting, uh, and this week was particularly, uh, you know, talking about Diplock and and the absence of uh, juries in, in these trials. Yeah. So really interesting yeah. stuff, and I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody to yeah. uh, Yeah, definitely. Students. It's very good that it's back back on the air. They yeah. also had a look at some stuff in, in the United States as well. They the, did, the yeah. Joshua Rosberg yeah. looking at... Uh, interesting to look at the different, you know, judicial... Yeah. 
aspects of the UK yeah. and US law. Yeah, yeah. It's been interesting to watch reactions here actually as well over the last week or so to the story about Lord Hayne naming Philip Green as the business executive behind the that injunction against the Daily Telegraph, um, not least because it's focused new attention on the non-disclosure agreements which the Appeal Court put at the centre of its decision to award the injunction against the complainants. And remember, we still don't know or the Telegraph, rather, can't say who those complainants are. So I've been speaking to Sarah Russell. She's a solicitor who specialises in employment law and has worked on non-disclosure agreements for many years. She told me they're much more common than most of us might think from just reading the papers. I see settlement agreements in a, a very wide range of situations. So they're certainly not exclusively used in situations that involve sexual harassment. Many major companies use them absolutely as standard as part of their redundancy process. So they'll be doing mass redundancies and every single outgoing employee will be signing one of these things. Um, so they, they're used across the board extremely habitually by some companies um, to cover off sort of anyone who's going under a redundancy situation. They're also used where there's a more obvious threat of litigation and and sometimes they're used generally where the employment relationship has deteriorated and not specifically because of sort of discriminatory allegations. Sometimes they are quite specifically being used to shut down conversations about sexual harassment, about maternity discrimination, about race discrimination and, and all those areas. But they're certainly not restricted to only being used for those. Right. I mean, I, I've got a background as a, as a trade union rep and trade union organiser. So I've come across some of those circumstances where you've got large numbers of people being made redundant. But I, I didn't come across them that often. And it was more to I came across them more often in kind of personal cases, really, where I guess, as you say, the company, the employer wants to essentially shut down uh, a conversation, shut down any public discussion or something. Yes, I mean, they definitely do get used in that context. It's just when we start to look at how they should be reformed, I think one of the things that's currently missing from the conversation is actually that's not the only way that they're being used. And certainly sexual, even within a context where they're being used to try and hush things up, sexual harassment is not the only thing that they're hushing up here. And, and, and we need to be really kind of aware of that because it changes how you need to reform them so one of the things i see quite a bit of is maternity discrimination and actually the equality and human rights commission estimates that about fifty thousand women a year are losing their jobs in the uk in situations of maternity discrimination so actually sexual harassment is a significant problem but there are actually other significant problems and there are companies that are quite habitually getting rid of women who are pregnant or on maternity leave and these clauses are being used in that context as well and are problematic in the same way in terms of public interest in respect of that scenario. If you ruled the world, Sarah, what what do you think would ha- should happen then to, to change things? Does it, is it a, a broader sweep of employment law that needs to change? Or are there ways that you could reform the non-disclosure agreement system to make them uh, less likely to be abused in this way? You could reform the current system to make the agreements less abusable. There's also a whole social piece here about actually how has it come to be that when women make these sorts of disclosures, they're broadly not particularly uh, responded well to by their employers, that actually it's seen as being a difficult woman who can be sort of paid off. 
rather than actually we've got a really serious problem with this guy um, and and how are we going to sort his behaviour out, frankly? You know, like why why have we ended up in this environment where a lot of men are behaving in this way in the first place? But th- there's also something here about most of those individual employees, whether they've been sexually harassed or whether they are being discriminated against because they're pregnant or on maternity leave, they're not in anything like the financial position to seek advice that their employers are. So their employers can get top-notch lawyers to come and draft all this stuff up and intimidate the heck out of these women. And the women that I see typically are professional, and they're worried about what's going to happen to their income and about maintaining their professional reputation and keeping everything very quiet so they can find new work. There's a whole other strata of women who actually will never, ever get as far as seeing a lawyer. And even if they do see a lawyer because they've been offered a settlement agreement and it says that they have to have legal advice on it before it will be binding, so the employer typically makes an offer towards their legal advice. The typical offer towards their legal advice is so pitiful that it will barely get an explanation to them of what that settlement agreement means. It certainly does not pay for those agreements to be fully negotiated so that those women get wording that properly protects them as well as their employer and that they are properly getting an amount of money that genuinely reflects what they would potentially get if they brought a successful claim. So what I would like to see is far, far better access to legal advice for people who can't otherwise afford it so that they can actually get proper advice before they start signing these things and not just a quick whiz through the agreement because that's not good enough in these situations. So, so that's uh, Sarah Russell, uh, solicitor. So thanks, thanks to her for coming on the programme. I mean, we, we discussed that at some length last week and, and particularly the, the kind of journalistic implications of all of that. So uh, earlier this week, I went to watch... I, I mentioned that we, we were going to be talking about Northern Ireland uh, because earlier this week I went to watch a screening of a film, No Stone Unturned, which investigates the 1994 Loch and Island massacre where six Irishmen were murdered while they were watching the World Cup at the local pub. Their families have always presumed a loyalist paramilitary group was responsible, but the police have never found the killers. Two Northern Ireland investigative journalists, Barry McCaffrey and Trevor Burney, helped the director researching the film. But last August, they were both arrested by police investigating what they said was the theft of confidential documents from the police ombudsman's office. Barry was at the Manchester screening earlier this week, which was organised by the local branch of the National Union of Journalists. He told me how he and Trevor Burney spent more than 12 hours in custody and how it all began. It was shortly before 7am, 31st of August uh, this year. It was a knock at the door. Uh, I looked looked down the stairs and there's a you know a, a big policeman in a boiler suit. Uh, so... You, at that stage, you take a decision. You know what do you do? Do you say no, you're not coming in, or uh, you have to take a you have to take a decision of just are you going to cooperate or uh, what happens? So I let them in, uh, and they said they were here looking uh, to search the house for uh, documents that had been. Uh, leaked documents that had been shown in the film that were right at the heart of the film that showed the uh, the, the levels of collusion that had gone on uh, between the police and uh, the killers and the uh, efforts that had gone on to protect the killers and not to bring uh, the killers to justice. Uh, and the police's claim is that 
these documents were stolen? Yes, the police, uh, well, the, they say they're stolen. Uh, other people would say that they came from a, well, I don't know where they came from, but certainly I believe they came from a whistleblower, somebody who became aware of uh, the, the fact that uh, six men, uh, six innocent, uh, unarmed civilians uh, were killed by people who the film shows uh, were, were at least one of them was a police agent, was a police informer, uh, and so that's what that's what the, the police were looking for these documents. Uh, I it, I was uh, I was working in in uh, BBC at the time, so I asked them could I go and uh, get washed and get dressed and. Uh, so they let me get washed uh, with the policeman at all, at all times. So you had to be naked. Uh, and uh, then when I said, right, uh, I'm, I have to go to work now. Will you put the key through the door? Uh, when, when you're finished, they then said, no, now we're, we're, we're arresting you. Uh, so we were taken away, uh, put in the police cell for 14 hours. Uh, and obviously uh, questioned uh, throughout the day myself and uh, uh, throughout the day I, I was able to find out that Trevor, Trevor Burney, my colleague, uh, was arrested as well. Uh, one of the, the irony is is that the, uh, the evidence or the complaint against us, the police went to the alleged killer and asked the killer, uh, or asked, asked the alleged killer, uh, the man who who the police believed we, we, the whole film is based on police documents so it's the man who police say killed uh, eight people six people in Lachan Island and two previous murders uh, they went to him to ask uh, did he feel that his uh, his feelings had been hurt uh, or that his reputation had been damaged uh, by this film so you know there was an irony in that uh, that the uh, Police are going to a person who they believe killed eight people. Uh, they ask how how how's he, how, how's he feeling about yeah. it. So what what was it that the police were actually looking for? Were they looking for the documents, or were they wanting you to tell them where you where the documents came from, or, or what what was what, what were they after? Yes, uh, well, it was it was both. Uh, they were looking for documents uh, that they could prove uh, that had been, they say, stolen, we believe. Uh, it was a public-spirited uh, somebody. It, from, it could have come, actually, from either the police ombudsman's office or the police office, or the police service in Northern Ireland themselves because they had the same documents. Uh, so they were looking for these documents because if, if they could find that we had possession of these documents, uh, they could charge us with that. And then they, during police questioning, they wanted to, we were questioned throughout the day about uh, where these documents had come from and uh, uh, what we had done with them, how we had used them. Now, the, some, there's, a, there's a lot of particular issues in, in amongst here. Um, People in Northern Ireland, people all over the UK, but particularly in Northern Ireland, people have got into trouble with the police and the authorities for uh, not revealing confidential sources. That happens more often than we'd like, yes. but it does happen quite a lot and has happened in a lot of cases related to the troubles. But yourself and Trevor are in a particular bit of bother over the Official Secrets Act, which hasn't come into play in these, in normally, in the normal kind of run of, of, of these events. So tell me a, a about that because that's likely to be 
that's likely to be challenged all the way up to the yeah. Supreme Court, you think now? Yes, well, it's certainly the, the legal experts who, and we're, we're very thankful to the, the National Union of Journalists uh, for uh, supporting us uh, financially and and uh, uh, every other way. Uh, the art, Article 10 of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, the Convention, uh, gives journalists the defence to expose or to question or to hold uh, the state uh, to account that we you, you, you know the freedom of the press uh, now we believe passionately in article 10 and the right for a free press in any democracy uh, what the state are saying is that uh, the official secrets act trumps uh, uh, our article 10 the journalists right to uh, to hold the state to account now what we believe is that we believe, I, personally, I believe every state, if they want the, uh, to have official secrets act or to use the official secrets act, that's great. If it's to defend its citizens, but what seems to have happened here is they're using the official secrets act to protect the killers and to protect the fact that the state colluded with killers to murder its own citizens. I don't believe that that. A, that is a proper and that is a democratic uh, use of the Official Secrets Act. The Official Secrets Act, to me, a state is meant to defend and to protect its citizens, especially its its unarmed citizens. I don't believe that the state should use uh, legislation like the Official Secrets Act to protect killers, people who they say are killers, because it's their documents that we've that we've used. And I suppose you'd, you'd also be saying that the, the state is using using your case as a way of kind of protecting the reputation and they're using the Official Secrets Act to protect the reputation because we've got a, we've got a, the, the murder of these people completely unsolved for, for all these years. Yes, uh, yes, 1994. You know, police conveniently, or um, they would say uh, an, an honest mistake, they destroyed all the uh, interview notes with the alleged killer, the man who they say carried out all the killings, they destroyed all uh, his interview notes within two years of the atrocity because they say uh, they believed that it had been contaminated with asbestos. When they get the chance to interview him uh, last year or earlier this year, the only thing that they seem to want to question him about is is how his, were his feelings uh, hurt by this film. They don't actually question him about did you kill did you kill six unarmed men in a, in a bar in Lockin Island they, they, you know because we have the interview notes now uh, because police went to him uh, to ask to, uh, to use him uh, as a vehicle to arrest us police go and uh, ask the alleged killer the man who they say killed six people to make a complaint against us I think that's pretty perverse that's uh, Barry McCafferty, and, and thanks very much to him, and thanks to the NUJ for putting on that showing. It's a fascinating film, and quite shocking in places as well, about just how, well, the the use of um, police informants, for example, is right mm. at the heart of the, the thing, and uh, the, the alleged killer... Well, three people, two sure. people with guns and one driver, but the alleged killer, the alleged leader of the gang, how he appears to have been a police informant, and that seems to have led to a massive cover-up. That's the the thrust of the film, at uh -huh. any rate. 
but it's a quite a shocking example in lots of other ways about the trouble that journalists can get into when they're handling sensitive material like these documents. Yeah, I think so, Pete, and I think it goes back to you know what we were talking about the, the other week with the um, Birmingham bombing yeah. and Chris Mullin and the particular difficulties that uh, our fellow colleagues uh, face in Northern Ireland, yeah. and particularly uh, you know pressurised way that maybe yeah. UK uh, mainland journalists do not face. Uh, and as you would say, they're going to take this right to the uh, fight it right to the end. And I think with the backing of the NUJ, um, this could be something of a test case for, for journalists protecting the sources. And uh, and also the fact that they're coming under the official secret The official side, secret side, yeah. It's a yeah. very worrying aspect to yeah. this. So um, one that everyone should be watching with, with very close attention. Yeah, I mean, it may take some time before it gets to that stage because mm. um, um, Barry explained during the Q&A after the, uh -huh. the, the session about how there's, there's various stages to go through because in the first instance, the police have to prove that these are the original documents um, from the police ombudsman's yeah. office, and uh, Barry says that he doesn't believe they are. He yeah. he doesn't know for certain. He kept stressing that all the way through. He doesn't know the origin of these documents, but it it looks like they were they were kind of transcribed copies of the originals. Yeah. And so if they're going to get them for the Official Secrets Act, they have to prove that these are the original documents. And he, he doesn't think the police can ever prove that. Yeah, they also have to prove who it was that um, took them to France. It's a long, long involved story, but one of the three people um, who were supposedly involved in the Lockan Island um, killings now lives in France, mm. and they're, they're accused of taking the documents to France, and that's the breach of the Official Secrets Act. Sure. Yeah. But they have to show whether it was Barry or Trevor who carried the documents, and they're not saying. No, surprise, and, surprise. Uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's going to be a long, long time before it comes to the Supreme Court, but uh, it, it could, go, could go all that mm. way. So a reminder, you're listening to Bang to Rights from Manchester Metropolitan University's Journalism Unit. And if you, have view, if you have a view on that story or anything else that we're covering, please let us know on Twitter at RightsBang. So next, Dave, uh, on to your interview with David Collins, who's now at the Sunday Times, but who won, as you said, UK Journalist of the Year in 2012 for his investigation while he was at the Daily Mirror into the murder of the Surrey schoolgirl Millie Dowler in 2002. It took nine years before the serial killer Levi Belfield was found guilty of her abduction and murder. And David Collins' interviews with Belfield from prison formed part of the police investigation. I was a trainee at the time and a call came into the newsroom mm -hmm. and it, I didn't know this when the call came in, but it was one of Levi Belfield's friends. Okay. So Belfield was already in prison for killing Emily Delagrange mm. and Marshall McDonnell. So he'd already been sentenced and was in Wakefield Prison at the time. Right. So what the police were trying to do was they had a convictions for those two, but they wanted to get him for Millie, sure. even though he was still in prison. Yeah. But it was such a public interest case Massive that they case, wanted yeah. that result for the family. Mm. So, my, so I started talking to this, um, this friend of his who offered me, weirdly, another story which to get to the bottom of it, Belfield from prison was trying to get a story about one of his enemies oh, okay. into the paper. And it was about a guy called Suraj Guru, who was a convicted paedophile. But this, he got this friend to ring up and say, uh, oh, there's this guy called Suraj Guru. I don't know if you're interested, but he's just bought a flat opposite this yeah. primary school oh, uh, or, or some sort of school. Mm. Uh, are you interested in doing a story? So 
I looked into it a little bit, and basically the 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 news desk weren't interested. And it's just one of those things. Sometimes yeah. the new news editors like something, yeah. as you know, and sometimes it just doesn't fall within there. Sure. But when I was talking to him, I said, "Oh, uh, he mentioned that he was friends with Levi, Levi Balefield, mm -hmm. which and straight away the news editors were like, up. that's interesting. Yes. So I pursued that element, knowing that I had that sort of um, possible connection to Belfield. Yeah. So I started communicating with him with with letters that I'd passed to this friend. With so Belfield, you mean? Yeah, so I'd give le I'd write a letter sure. with questions and saying, you know, uh, this is who I am. Are you interested in doing an interview, mm. basically? Um, which I'd give to this friend, and the friend would then pass to Belfield in prison. And on prison visits? On prison visits. Mm. So this is how the kind of, this, this is how it started. And then a letter came back from Belfield from the friend saying, yes, I'd like to do an interview. So that was a setup. Um, at the time, there was no agreement on what that interview was going to be. Mm -hmm. But he was basically saying that he wanted to, you know, he, he, he was convicted wrongly by the police, that he didn't kill Emily. He was looking for your help to, to press to, his case. To, yeah, to, pre to, to turn over those yeah. convictions. So he wanted kind of um, a voice in which he could say, the police have wrongly convicted me here Wrong. of these yeah. murders. Sure. So I knew I knew that was you know the case. And I did genuinely actually look into it to mm. see how Just solid the convictions were. And the the evidence that I spoke to Colin Sutton, who was the lead investigator who caught Belford and he he formed the case around sure. Amelie and uh, he got those convictions. Yeah. So I spoke to him, I, I sort of got a sense of what the evidence was, okay. and it was just so cut well, and dry. Yeah. I mean, so, but what I was interested in was the connection to Millie, mm. because I knew that he was a suspect. So, it, so I knew to, you know, I did want to interview him. On so, a difficult subject. On, yes. exactly. So he wouldn't want to talk to me about no. that. But um, my way in, was saying, yes, I will listen to you yeah. in terms of your appeal. Appear to be a friend. I, I appear to be a friend oh. to you, but at some point I'm going to introduce the Millie stuff. Mm. So what happened was the friend introduced me to his family, okay. who was Belfield's mum, Jean, and yeah, his brother. His yeah. I sort of met on quite a few times, sure. and they were speaking to me, and they were yeah. very keen to say, they're, they're completely convinced yeah. that Levi is, is innocent. Is innocent. Yeah. One of the first days I was with them, Levi Belfield rang. We we're in the, his brother's house. Oh, okay. And Levi rang from prison, <laughs> the house phone. And literally, I watched the, his mum pick up the phone and say, oh, hi, Lee. This is what they called him, Lee. Hi, Lee, what are you doing? Mm. And um, they started talking about Coronation Street, <laughs> weirdly, of all things. And yeah. I was like, she put the phone down. And I was like, is that, are you speaking to Levi Belfield? <laughs> like one of the most infamous serial killers in the country about coronation. Yeah. And she was like, oh yeah, he's watching it. Uh, and I was like, oh right, okay. So we just- So they were completely convinced of his, his innocence. Totally. Okay. The mum, I mean, the mum's died now, mm. but she was convinced, brother convinced that it's all kind of, it was a stitch up by the police. Okay. So I realized then that's the way to interview him. In. When he calls the house, I'll answer. And then we'll do it that way. So the day came when I was going to speak to him, and then he presented me 
with a letter. The letter, yes. Where he wrote, I am only acting in Levi Belfield's best interests. As a form of contract. It was. It was kind of informal contract. But it was quite clever from the family because I really had to kind of... I was 27 at the time. I've never done anything like this before. It was Uh pre-Leveson, which does did make a difference, actually. Mm. The culture of newspapers did change after Leveson. Of course, yeah. Before Leveson, you had... It wasn't Ipso at the time. It was a PCC. PCC, Which... Every journalist did adhere to, mm, and I, 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 as a trainee, if I broke the PCC, I'm in serious po- uh, that's serious mm-hmm. trouble. <clears throat> but subterfuge changed. So the difference between the PCC and Ipso was yeah. in Ipso now, you have to get the sign off from the editor of the publication. Yeah. So it has to go through a process. Audit trail, and you have to have prior evidence. And you have to have prima facie. Kind of, you yeah. have to have the audit trail. Sure. You have to have the top guy with the lawyer. Interest at the time. Yeah, signing it off. Sure. So now, I mean, I can talk now about a project that I've got at the moment where it's gone through this audit trail. Uh-huh. Back then, before Leveson, mm. the PCC, you, you could do subterfuge, but it had to be in the public interest. Sure. That was the overriding yeah. kind of factor. So if you could prove that or you had a case for that, you could do it. Sure. But to be honest, when they presented that to me, I'll be honest, the only thought going through my head was, if I don't sign this, I'm not going to get the interview. Of course. So yeah. I signed it saying, yes, I'm only acting in his mm. best interests. And then 10 minutes later, Levi rings and then I'm speaking to him and I speak to him for about an hour and a half, two hours, uh, yeah, say an hour. Mm about an hour and he's he's quite a personality he's quite an overwhelming personality because yeah. he, he's sort of he does he's a kind of you can't get a word in edgeways okay. he talks about a million miles an hour he's got this high squeaky voice mm. and he's completely psychotic i cannot okay. tell you yeah. kind of how he fits the bill of a serial killer he really does but in a kind of a He's very, he's a clever guy, mm. and he, even when you talk to him, he's got an excuse for everything. So okay. I was asking about Amelie and Marsha as kind of, what do you make of this? I was going through the evidence with him yeah, sure. to see what his response would be uh-huh. to each point of mm-hmm. why he was convicted. And part of that was sort of, <clears throat> you know, I did genuinely want to know. Yeah. And part of it was, I had to do him. this because if I don't, then he and the family well then, no, yeah. I'm only here for Millie. You had to put up a front. I had to put up that front mm. to kind of get to. Yeah. So the first interview was kind of that, and I didn't, we didn't get on to Millie. Okay. I went back the next day, I did another interview, and the last half an hour of the mm. second interview was about Millie. Yeah. And I went through basically a list of 10 questions I had prepared. Okay. And the la- one of the last questions was about the red Dayu car, yeah. which was on CCTV which was seen coming out onto Station Avenue and where the police are saying, do you know the owner who was driving this car at the time? Because you couldn't see who was in the car because the footage wasn't quite, um, it wasn't clear, you couldn't see the driver. Mm -hmm. So they they knew that his girl, the police knew that his girlfriend owned that make of car. They Uh knew that his girlfriend had that car. It was a definite link. Yeah, so they, they would have known that. But what they didn't know, so they, they, he basically told me he was driving the car that day. Uh, and the reason was he had a van, but he gave the van 
to a friend for like it was like a build like a builder's van it's like yeah. a white van he Just gave like, he gave the car to a friend <clears throat> and that's why he borrowed his girlfriend's car to sort of you know and he was using that mm. day to day yeah. so he admitted to me basically that that was him in right. the CCTV so it put him on the crime scene so it yes. put him at the point where Millie was last seen which was Station Avenue that car was coming out onto Station Avenue mm. half an hour after he was last seen. Right. So it put him in the area at the Men time suspect. she went missing. Yeah. So then that helped them kind of build a case. Um, it wasn't just that why, you know, why he got convicted. There was no. evidence around that, but that <coughs> helped them. And it helped them work out his movements. And there was a lot of other backgrounds because he'd never talked about it before no. to the police. So that sort of, you know, that bit of information in that interview was then, we, we published that. Sure. It took weeks for it to mm. go in. But then they published it and we passed over the tapes to of the, the recording to the police. Yeah. Yeah. And then they sort of used that mm. and, you know, so we helped the police. And wait, at what point did the, the was the, his mum and the brother complained uh, about deception yeah. effectively, subterfuge, to what was then the PCC who ruled in your favour? Effectively. Yeah, that's right. So I remember when he did complain, and it's quite a big thing mm. for a reporter. You weren't so expecting it? I wasn't ex was I expecting it. Mm. No, I probably wasn't. It's hard to remember, but I probably wasn't. But I remember it coming in mm. because the legal team call you up and then your news editor comes over and you have a meeting. Which is quite a big thing. Yeah. And it's quite a big thing because the last thing you want is an <clears> upheld <throat> complaint from a serial killer and their family. <laughs> in the paper, because you're in serious trouble then. Yes. And I know pre-Leveson, people were talking about the PCC, and a lot of there's a lot of critics like hacked off, were, and there were yeah. a lot of things that are, were wrong with journalism. Mm. Um, you know, at the Mirror, there were a lot of things that went on in the Mirror's past. Well, now we know, of course, is, don't we? Yeah, which has come out. Mm. Um, but genuinely, I can say this as a reporter there, that the PCC was considered it, it you know it was a big thing for it's a effective. reporter to get a complaint yeah and it went through a proper process and if you had a if you had a complaint upheld it was a black mark against your name sure. as a reporter yeah. so you do everything in your power basically to stop it happening were you fairly confident that, that it would come down on your side i was there was there was two things they complained about so the first one was the subterfuge itself misrepresentation yeah. Yeah. i was confident on that and the reason I was confident was because I produced new and compelling information for the police. So I knew that that would give me yeah. the public interest sure. defence. Mm -hmm. What I wasn't confident on, I did a follow-up piece, which, I, you know, mm. it's one of those things. Um, I was a young reporter and it's kind of, that was a public interest story. The second story that was published yeah. was a kind of more what Levi's life in prison is like and he, the family told me stuff like he rings know. home and talks to his mother about Carnation exactly yes. and it was more yeah and it was like yeah. a colour read about you know the killer in, in his cell and he can freely ring up his mum talk about Corrie and his yeah. best friend murdered his uh, wife with an axe and that's what the mum said you know I can't believe yeah. my son's best friend in prison killed his wife with an axe and can you believe that and so all this fantastic and detail. And you name them, of course, his mum and I name the mum and yeah. I name the brother. 
I think I named the brother, certainly I named the mum. Yeah. So that was a day two piece. So they complained on that, saying it was intrusion into privacy. Privacy, yeah. And the printing of unnecessary details, which put their lives at risk. So I was worried about that because I didn't, there wasn't a strong public mm. interest no. case on that. It just seemed to be. It was more of a kind of a, it was gen, I mean, it was more of a gossipy piece, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Um, but they ruled in my favour on that because the detail that I put in, they deemed it not kind of, it wouldn't have put them at risk. No. Because A, I didn't identify where they lived. Sure. I didn't kind of give them any sort of detail. I didn't give the reader any detail that could be followed up yeah. by somebody who didn't like them and then... And there had been the an element of consent, but, but you'd been in the house, effectively. Yeah. Been invited you in, they must have known you're a professional journalist. Um, they, they, and it was massively public interest, simply the fact that they're part of his extended family. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. So there is that, yeah, there is that, yeah, there is that defence, and they ruled in my favour. Uh, mm -hmm. They also ruled an accuracy. Uh, they they made an accuracy complaint, okay. which was upheld in my favour because I produced the the tapes, yeah. but also on the Belfield okay. side, but on the um, they ruled in my favour on the other side because I had a shorthand note, so I'd speak sure. to them and then I'd, yeah. I'd write it up in sure, shorthand. Yeah. But some of it was informal conversations mm. with me and the family, but they upheld me on that. Um, but yeah, it was a kind of a, it's a big ruling that for the mm, paper mm. because... Well, it's almost like a case study, really. It, it, it sets a precedent. Do you think um, you would have the same outcome now under Ipsol? I, you know, we, when we were just saying about the differences between Ipso and the PCC, mm. the difference now is there is, the, there's not the same flexibility when it comes to subterfuge, sure. which is good and bad. It mm. works both ways. So in, in terms of good, it, it tightens up what reporters are doing in the field. Yes. So reporters now, unless you have that stringent sign off through that audit trail, yeah. you have to present yourself, your publication, who you are, and you have to present yourself in that manner, otherwise you break the ipso, yeah. and you could be sacked for that as a reporter. Quite so I think, yeah, exactly. So I think in, in, in terms of tightening up behavior, I think it's been a good thing, mm. post-Leveson. Um, in that exact situation, if I had assigned that letter uh, without the sign-off from the editor, then I would have been in breach of it. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so it's interesting, but probably there's a way I could have done it under the under the current rules because I knew effectively you what my argument was. Much longer, you wouldn't have been able to. Um, do things on the cuff, so to speak. Yeah, you know? I think that's the way it would have worked. Mm. I would have had to have more meetings. Yeah. It wouldn't have been as on the cuff, and it would have been it wouldn't have been that spontaneous. You maybe have to take the decision. Back, get it signed off. And yeah, because I knew because I knew with the I knew what I was doing, and the news desk knew yeah. that it was about presenting myself as a reporter that was going to write his side of things. Yeah, sure. So before I walked in and had to sign that thing, I knew that. So we could have had under the current we could have got that sign off and then 
So it, w it would have worked, but it's just it's interesting how that sort yeah. of the cultural shift. It's a big uh, it's a big change. Well, industry shift, yeah. Yeah. David Collins, who's now with the Sunday Times, and we'll play part two of that interview next week, where we go on to talk about just how that cultural shift has played out in the years since the Levison inquiry, and how we've seen another impact of that change in how journalists approach bereaved families, such as after the Arena bombing or the Grenfell Tower fire. Interesting stuff all the way through. So I, I don't want to preempt what we're going to hear next week, but mm. he, he's got a lot to say about that aspect as well. Yeah, I think obviously being situated in, in Manchester, um, we know about the um, you know what effect the the approaches the by the media had on the families. In fact, one of my colleagues just this week, Eleanor, um, pointed us to a website that uh, Dan Hett had set yeah. up, which is very interesting, and I think that every journalist should look at. It's called "Sorry to Bother You." Yeah. Of course, Dan is the, the brother of, uh, of Martin, Martin, one of the uh -huh. victims, yeah. and it um, is really. Uh, shows what an ethical quagmire that we can get into and uh, and as we saw from the Kurzweil review and many journalists just simply abandoned or ditched their you know, so-called ethical guidelines yep. in this instance. Yep. So uh, I, I really kind of, um, you know, it brings it really home to this if you look at this website and, and it takes you through a virtual and I of what it might be like to be a victim yep. of a family. Yep. So we'll have a, we'll have a look at Dan's game, his computer game, and mm. we'll have Ellie on the on the show next week. Sure. So we'll, we'll go through Fantastic. that in a bit more detail and and hear a bit more from David Collins. So before we close this week, Dave, um, a lot of the students have been away for half term this mm. week, um, but we're back in the lecture rooms next week. What's what's in store for them then? Uh, well, we're doing defamation, uh, defamation defence. So we'll be looking at um, all the options available to uh, to us as journalists. You know, truth, honest opinion. Innocent dissemination. Um, I took the second year to the uh, court on Monday, to the magistrates' yep. court for the first time. So hopefully they were suitably impressed um, by the by the rare cases. So a lot of remand cases. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, gives them a, a, a nice insider view of what's what's happening out there in the real world of the law. And, and I had the, the post-grad students in Crown Court um, this week. Um, it was a difficult case because, you know, you sort of dip into these things halfway mm. through. You're not quite sure what the rest no. of the evidence is. But we've kind of pieced, sort of pieced the story together a little bit. And uh, we'll, we'll be looking back on that next week with them and get their reflections on that. So uh, that's it for this week. Um, thanks, Dave. We're bang to rights. Thanks, please. Do subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It, it means Bang to Rights will just pop up on your podcast feed. You'll also find us on Stitcher, or you can search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. And please leave us a rating. It helps spread the word and helps others find us. You can tweet us at RightsBang, and do let us know if there are topics or issues from the lectures or from your reading, which you want us to cover in future editions. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.